listening. So many great people in our church, isn't there? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you're one of them. And it's good to be here this morning. How want I talk to you this morning on, um, on hopelessness. Hopelessness where your strength is found. You know, um, I'm like most, well, I think I'm like most males. And that when we go on a trip, especially on a bit of a road trip, um, I have this inability to ask for directions. Does anybody else here understand what I'm talking about? You have an inability to ask for directions. If you're male, please put your hand up and join me by saying, I would rather suffer pain than have to stop and ask for directions. Come on, come on, let's be honest this morning. Just let, just let it come out, let it, let it come out. Um, I can remember time and time again where Trinity goes, why don't we just stop and ask for directions? How many guys know that that's, you might as well just take my man badge off me. If I have to stop and ask for directions, or if I have to read instructions as I'm putting furniture together, then you might as well just take my man badge off me. You're meant to have at least five or six screws left over once you put furniture together. They're the extras that they put in there that you didn't need because if you followed their instructions, it takes longer. But if you're a man, you just do your thing and it lasts for about two weeks before you've got to put it back together the right way. Yeah. We have this thing actually on the inside of each and every one of us where we, we believe we have to be self-reliant. We, we believe we actually have to have this self-resilience and self-reliance about anything and that's why, you know, uh, when we've had opportunities to ask for directions, I just won't do it. Now, thank the Lord, we have smartphones, and so I can ask my phone, and that's not like asking a person. So that's not defeat, that's just called being smart. Can I get some guys to get on my board this morning? Listen to this, the American Psychologist magazine says this. It says that we are less likely to ask for help if we can do anything in the world to tough things out on our own, no matter how unlikely we will do it. Anything is better than getting to the end of me and admitting how much I need help. We have an innate thing on the inside of us that says, I would rather suffer than admit that I need help. I'd rather suffer than, and, and go through all sorts of things and put my hand up and ask for help. And, and we have this kind of self-resilience thing because we love we, we, our favorite verse in the Bible, which actually isn't a verse in the Bible, is that verse that we love called, God helps those that help themselves. How many people have heard that quoted? Come on. It's not even in the Bible. And in fact, it's not even biblical because the Bible doesn't teach us that God helps those that help themselves. The Bible teaches that God helps those that are helpless. The Bible actually teaches that God helps those that in the middle of a crisis will actually put their hand up and say, I need help. God doesn't help those that help themselves. God helps those that can't help themselves. God helps those that are hopeless. That's why he died for us on the cross for our sins. While we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us because he knew that we couldn't do it for ourselves, so he did it for us. It's actually a wrong mentality to say that, that if you want God's help, then you've got to help yourself a little bit. No, no, no. In fact, if you want God's help, the best place to be is in helplessness because that's what God helps the best. God helps those that stop in the middle of the crisis and ask for help. And when we are helpless and we know it, the reality is, is we're more likely to be open to the transforming power 
of what God wants to give us. How many people here, like me, would admit to yourself that the most incredible encounters with God I've ever had is when I finally got to the end of my ability and given up and said, actually, I need your help. Okay, I'll be the only one to admit that. The rest of you can lie this morning. In John 5, chapter 1 to 7, there's a story of a man who was pretty helpless and And I want to read that to you, and I want to pull some things out of that story to help us understand that helplessness is not a bad place. Helplessness is the place where you find your strength. And it says this, sometimes later Jesus went up to Jerusalem from one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades, Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been invalid for 38 years, and when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me, and so What happened at this pool is that there was this belief that the angel would come every now and then and stir the the pool waters and whoever got in first got healed. And so you can imagine this pool became a magnet for the blind, the crippled, the disabled, people that had had leprosy, all sorts of things, all sorts of problems that they had. This pool became a a place, it became a magnet for those that needed healing. I, I would suspect of this man after 38 years of being at that pool hoping for his moment, that after a period of time, if if I was him, and if we're honest, if we were him, our hearts would start to get a little bit hardened to the idea. I think after a, a period of 38 years of believing that eventually you'd probably stop praying, that eventually you'd probably stop hoping, and you'd actually just accept that The reality is, is that this is my life. My life is in a hopeless situation, and that's the reality of my life. And the thing is, is that there was plenty of other people there that came and watched, and some got in when the waters were changed and they were healed, but this guy for 38 years had been a pool dweller. And you have to wonder by now what his motives were there for being there. I mean, I don't know about you, but if, if I'd been rocking up there every day for 38 years, after a while I'd think, you know what, this is just not working, let's try something else. You, you've got to wonder what his motive is now that after 38 years he's still rocking up there every single day hoping to possibly get in the water. And When Jesus asks him if he wants to get well, his answer is basically, well I have no one to help me get in the water. So he's been dropped off there every day hoping to get in the water, but he has no one to help him get in the water. So really he's just been dropped off. There's no chance of him ever getting in the water because he doesn't have anyone to help him get in the water. He's he's now just stuck. Rocking up to the pool. You've got to wonder what his motives are after all this time. Maybe in the early days, maybe in in the first couple of years or whatever, he turned up every day with a real belief in his heart that today's my day, today I'm going to get in that water, today, this, this is my moment, that today was his day and he's going to be healed and, and all that, but after 38 years, 
of that. He's now, he's now rooted to that spot. He's just getting dropped off every day, not because he has anyone to help him get in the water, not because he has a chance of getting in the water, but he's just rooted to that spot now. That's, that's where he goes. That's where he hangs. He, he expected nothing other than some coins to land in his hand as people walked past as he begged. Hopelessness for him now has just become part of the scenery of his life. It's just, it's just what it was. It's, he, he wasn't even trying because he had no one there to help him get in the pool. So when Jesus comes along and he says to him, do you want to be well? It's, it's kind of really kind of a bit of a strange question, really. It's a strange thing to ask because you would think, well, he's by the pool that heals people, isn't he? Don't you think he wants to be well? I mean, it's not a logical question to ask, but when you think about the fact that there's a whole lot of people there dropped off every day and he had no one to help him get into the pool, maybe he wasn't rocking up to the pool every day now because he was believing for healing, but he is rocking up to the pool every day now because that's what he did. You see, there's a whole lot of people that hang around the waters. There are a lot of people that like to hang around waters without actually wishing to be healed. There's actually a lot of people that come to church that actually don't want God's help. There's a lot of people that come to church that actually don't want God's help. There's people in this place right this morning that you come to church, but if I sat down with you and said, hey, I think you need God's help in this area of your life, some of you wouldn't want it. You want to come to church, tick the box and say, I'm a Christian. But we come to church and we don't really, some of us don't really want help. We, we're, just, we're just so used to getting dropped off at church every Sunday. You know, when we first came to Christ, we were hungry. We burned on the inside, hungry for God, hungry for Him. We were, we were to rock up, we were at church before it started. We'd be part of the pre-service prayer meeting. We'd volunteer. We'd get involved any way we can. But now, 38 years later, we kind of rock up at 10 minutes past and kind of mosey on in and kind of do a little bit of worship. I mean, it's a really good Sunday. It's a big But you don't have the hunger in you that you had when you first started. You're stuck. You're not coming to church because you want Jesus to help you. You're coming to church because that's what we do. You've lost the passion and worship. You don't even know how to clap during praise. You don't even give anymore. And if you do give, it's like a $20 tip because you don't actually trust God. With your, you've lost something, friend. You're stuck by a pool that you say you want to get healed in. But the reality is you never brought anybody with you to help you get in the pool. So really, you just want to be part of the crowd, but you're not really here to be healed. Was that ouch enough this morning? You see, Jesus is getting to the point here with this guy. Do you want to be well? Because Jesus is asking the same question. What's your motive for being here? It's been 38 years. You don't bring anybody with you to help you get in the pool, so why are you here? You're stuck here for a while. Do you, do you really, he's saying, do you really want something better? 
Do you really want something better or have you laid down your roots in a place of quiet desperation and of low expectation? What is your expectations of God? I don't know about you, but when I first got saved, the Bible rebukes the church and revelation because we lost its first love. When I first got saved, I believed God for everything and anything. And I know that as I started to walk with God and I grow with God, uh, over a period of time, you're, you start to have low expectations because maybe God doesn't come through for you the way that you want him to. And so you believe things about God, but you doubt that it's going to happen. We can get into this place where we get to that spot. I mean, he's saying, do you want to get well? I mean, here's the crazy thing. He's, he's an invalid. He's there at the pool. Of course he wants to get well, doesn't he? I mean, who, who wouldn't want help? Well, I tell you, someone afraid of change. Who wouldn't want help? Someone who's afraid of change. Someone who's been in such a way that this is the only life they've ever known. He's known no other life other than his invalidness. He's known no other life but his hopelessness. He may not have liked it, but he'd certainly learned to be able to live with it. He may not have liked the fact that he was crippled, but he learned to live as a cripple. It's, it's amazing what people can learn to endure in their lives. It's amazing what pain people can learn to live with. It's amazing what we can learn to endure, isn't it? Come on, let's be honest this morning. Some of us have endured pain from our childhood, from abuse and sexual abuse, and, and we've just endured it for years, and we've never gone for any help. We've never gone to get healing or of any kind. We've never gone to a counselor. We've just learned to live with it, what they call tolerable recovery. We've learned to tolerate that this part of my life is just always going to be broken. And I think in this man, there's a touch of all of us in him. There's a bit of all of us in this man. We expect a lot of things we accept, sorry, accept a lot of things in our lives that we know could be better, but we've just accepted them. We, we make statements like, well, that's just my life, yeah? Or, or as I say to my kids sometimes when they complain about how hard their lives are, I say, welcome to my world. You know, we, we do that, don't we? Well, that's just life. There's no our life. That's just life. And, and, and we accept this thing that we know that could be better, and we know we shouldn't really accept it, but we've learned to just live with life at that level rather than what God intends it to be. And so we've accepted that that's, that's just the way it is. We decide that God must want us to be in this position that we're in, because if he didn't, then he'd make something happen so that we weren't in it, yes? So in other words, it's not my fault my life is like this, it's God's fault. Because if God didn't want my life like this, he would have done something, wouldn't he? Or have you just not asked for help? Are we expecting God to do things without asking him for help? You see, after a while we get used to things and for some of us a limited life is less frightening than a thought of change. Living with a limited life that I can control is less frightening than living with a changed life where I don't know what it's going to look like. I can remember a lady, we were at Manukau New Life, and we were doing youth there, and, and she'd been praying and praying and praying that her unsaved husband would get saved. It was a cry of her heart, and, and, and then when he got saved, he, he got real saved. You know, like he was at prayer meetings, he was, 
in connect groups. He was serving in teams. And then she started complaining that he was always out doing church stuff all the time. <laughs> you know what I mean? Sometimes we actually don't realize what we're praying for, so sometimes it's better not to pray for it because at least this limited life I can handle, but I've got no idea what's going to happen if God changes my life. You see, resignation is better than disappointment, isn't it? Resigning myself to this is my best life that I can have is better than if I go after something and I'm really disappointed. Well, the reality is that we think that what we let go of here could be a real disappointment over here means that we don't actually believe that God is a good God. Because if God is asking you to let go of something here and say, man, you don't need to live this limited life, you can live a better life, then what we're really saying is we don't trust God that he's actually got good intentions for us. You see, fear of change can be highly motivating and ultimately limiting. Who wouldn't want help? Somebody who fears change. Who else wouldn't want help? Someone in denial of reality. You see, 38 years, he had no idea of what a healthy life looked like. He didn't know what his life would look like if he was able to walk and get around. He, he probably had never had to work a hard days in his life because he couldn't. So he relied on the gifts of other people. What would his life look like if all of a sudden he was healed? How would he earn an income? What would he do? He's done nothing. For, you know, all those things become a scary prospect. You see, he wasn't around healthy people, so unhealthy had become his new normal. He didn't know what, what life was like around healthy people because he spent his whole entire life around unhealthy people sitting by a pool all day, dropped off by his friends in the morning and picked up and taken home by his friends at night. He had no idea what the world was like outside of his pool, outside of those covered colonnades where they could get a break from the sun and lie there all together in their brokenness. He had no idea what it looked like to live a healthy life. Unhealthy was his normal. Unhealthy was his normal life. I, I like watching documentaries every now and then on my day off on Netflix and stuff. And I was watching one when Trinity came home on Friday of, you know, the world's worst prisons. I find that sort of stuff fascinating. But I watched this one documentary about this woman who had a tumor. And she was having this tumor removed. And, and the tumor was a 150 kg tumor. It's 150 kg. She only weighed like 70 she had this 150 kg tumor and they had to get the, the, uh, the fire service in there and they had to take a window out of her house and, and get her out and put her in an ambulance and, and cut the tumor away. And they, and, and they kept on asking her like, why, why, why did you let this thing get so big? Like, why didn't you do something? And this is literally her response. I, I just thought it would go away in time. I just thought it would go away in time. You see, we, we figure our finances will sort themselves out. The bills keep mounting, the debt keeps increasing, but it'll sort itself out. No, friend, the tumor is growing. I want, you know, my, my teenager, you know, one day they'll, they'll change their behavior and they'll, and they'll get on board with the program, but they're hanging out with a really unhealthy group of friends and they're getting further and further away from God. But, but let's just be patient. No, 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 friend, the tumor's growing. 
Well, you know, when it comes to our marriage, if we just, if we, if we just don't talk about our problems, then eventually they'll just fade away. No, 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 friend. The tumor is growing. It just doesn't go away. You can't just hope that it goes away. So why, why? They ask us, why didn't you ask for help? Why didn't you ask for help earlier? And she said, because as the tumor got bigger and bigger, it became more embarrassing to ask for help. Because she said, as soon as I asked for help, I knew what would happen. Doctors, nurses, fire off, everybody would start looking at me and my tumor. I can remember, um, I won't go into details, but I can remember once being in hospital with somebody and, and, and they had a fairly embarrassing condition and, and around their bowels and stuff like that. And, and um, the doctor says, oh, this is a training hospital. Do you mind if I get a couple of my colleagues to come in and have a look? H- how many is a couple? Two? Yes? Ten colleagues came in staring at this poor person. It's just like, it's embarrassing, yes? It's embarrassing. It's like, I thought it was two, a couple. is ten of them. And they're all talking like they're not there. Oh, can you see this? And can it's, it's horrible, yes? I went to a man conference last year, and hopefully guys will go again this year. And Tim Rainbow was the, was the pastor that was preaching there, and he was diagnosed with possibly having prostate cancer, and he went into the hospital and to be checked, and he had to have a physical check, not just a blood test check, so that means, you know, rubber glove, you know, and, um, and the doctor that comes in to see them goes, oh, Pastor Tony, Pastor Tony, um, I know you, I don't go to your church, I go to Ed's church, but I know you, and he's like, great, you know, and then as the guy inserts his finger to check, he says to him, in our church, we just shake hands. <laughs> but it's embarrassing, isn't it? She was embarrassed because of how big the tumor had got, and she knew as soon as she asked for help, people would see. We're the same way. We know we need help, but we're so ashamed of our situation that we won't ask for help, because to ask for help requires an act of humility. And we know then that our problems will be on display, maybe not to everybody, but at least to some. And with the tumor, she knew it wasn't going to go away, but the size of it was so embarrassing that she decided to do nothing about it. Because she knew that there would just be question after question, and there'd be no place to hide anymore. You see, we feel a a deep shame, and and the idea of, of going public or People finding out about our problems is just unthinkable. And so we live under the tyranny of what people think about us. We live under the tyranny of what people think about us, don't we? We constantly live under the tyranny of what we think people think about us. Why? Because pride demands a terrible price. Pride demands a terrible price. Pride demands that I don't humble myself and ask for help so I live with the pain and suffering that I'm going through. That's what pride demands. Demands an incredibly terrible price from us. And the crazy thing is, is about asking for help when it comes to the kingdom 
is that it's not a public thing. It's a private thing between you and a counselor and Jesus. God doesn't get up. We don't get up here in church and go, hey, let me just let you know I had, uh, I had so-and-so come and see me this week, church. You need to know they have a pornography problem and so-and-so came and saw me the other day and you need to know they're stealing money from their boss. And We don't get up here and declare. When, when have we ever done that? I declare my problems publicly, but I never declare yours. I declare my children's problems publicly and the problems my wife has with me publicly, but never yours. We just don't do that. In fact, the Bible says this, those things which are hidden that he'll shout from the rooftops. <laughs> See, when you try to hide stuff, it doesn't protect you because God loves you too much to leave you in that position. So he will eventually bring it into the public eye because he wants you to deal with it not to hide it. So before he shouts it from the rooftop, why don't you just tell someone you can trust and ask for help? We will actually suffer as long as we think we can suffer quietly without others knowing. Don't we? Yes? Uh, I'm, 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 I'm as bad as this. People would say to me, how's your dad? Yeah, he's all right. Yeah, shall, shall we... Shall we, you know, or like the other, the other Sunday I had a bit of a migraine and, and I mentioned it to somebody and we're having a prayer meeting at the front here and Jody, Jody says, shall we pray for your headache? No, it's okay, I'll, I'll suffer here alone. It's just like, I went home going, Craig, you're an idiot. There's an opportunity there to be prayed for, to be healed, but no, let's suffer with the migraine headache for the rest of the day. What is wrong with us? I've learned... That it's actually pointless, though, to offer help to those that haven't asked for it or won't admit that they need it. You see, until somebody wants to get well, there's not much that can be done. There really isn't. Until somebody wants to change or somebody wants to get well, you know, this is where we have trouble sometimes in family, isn't it? And in marriages where, where the wife or the husband thinks it's their job to change their partner. No, 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 there's, there's this thing called the Holy Spirit and it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict us of the things that we need to change. You are not the Holy Spirit. You are the wife or the husband. All right, can I just get that clear for you this morning? So what you want to do instead of telling him what he needs to change, just tell the Holy Spirit what he needs to convict him of. Save a whole lot of fights in your marriage and save you a whole lot of problems. Jesus still was saying to this guy, do you want to get well? And, and once again, he says this in verse 7, Sir, the invalid replied, have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. So he launches into this, into this well-used excuse, this well-worn excuse as to why he can't be healed, as to why he can't get into the pool and really what it boils down to is really he's saying I can't do this I can't handle this problem I can't handle this sin I can't rise and walk on my own I am at the end of my ability to get myself into this pool I can't do it the man at the pool may have been able to do certain things, but at the end, only Jesus could help him. Maybe there were two people around willing to 
willing to help him keep living the same old way. But what he says here is it's not that he didn't want to be well. What he said was, I don't have helpers. I don't have anybody to help me get into the pool and I can't do it on my own. I need help. That's really what he's saying here in his excuse is he's saying, I can't do this. But when did he stop asking for help? When did he stop asking for helpers? Let me ask you this morning, when did you stop asking? When did you stop asking for help? At what stage did you give up asking for help? See, he acknowledges to Jesus that he needs help. He knows he can't make it into the pool on his own. But Jesus, of course, doesn't need to get him to the pool because Jesus is the living water that has come to him. He doesn't need to get him into the pool. He is the pool. I remember saying to Jesus, saying to the Holy Spirit once, where are you in the room? Like, where are you? Are you in this corner? Are you in that corner? I remember going, Buffhead, I am the room. I remember that. You see, so often Jesus rewards pure faith of healing. Yeah, we see that. No such great faith have I seen anywhere. But in this circumstance, this is not the case. There's not great faith in this guy. There's no faith in this guy. He has come to the end of himself. He is in absolutely hopeless position. But Jesus doesn't tell him that he's not worthy of the healing. Jesus heals the man even though he makes excuses because he knows that that man is now at the end of himself. You know what? We do not need to audition to get God's help. We do not have to apply for God's help. We do not have to sit down and make a list of all the situations that we've got going on. You don't have to do a hardship application like maybe you have to do to wins when you're going for a tough time. With Jesus, we don't have to audition for help. We don't have to apply for help. We don't have to justify why we need help. We just need to ask for help. Oh, my situation's not bad enough. Fooey. It's an old saying. Don't know where that came from. Put that back in the past. But it doesn't matter. This is why I love people. And I can say this this morning because she's not there and she's not here because she won't get into it. I love people like Catherine Nicklin who prays for car parks outside the shop she wants to go to. I love that because she realizes if the God that knows how many hairs I have on my head is interested as to how many hair follicles I have on my head, he's interested in me getting car parks I want, getting the healing I want, getting the breakthrough that I need. Oh, that's stupid asking God for help with a car park. That's fine. You can park on the other side of the car park and walk. But she gets car parks outside the shops every time. You don't have to audition for Jesus' help. All we need to bring to him is our hopelessness. And he meets us right there at the end of our cells. It says in John 5, 8, he says to the man, get up. Get up. It's a twofold process here. Get up, pick up your mat and walk. Get up. 
He addresses the man in two ways here. The first one is through divine power of healing. Get up. Get up. Boom. He gets up. He's completely and totally healed. But then, but then he empowers the man to obey his command. He says, get up, pick up your mat and walk. Get up. Get healed. You're healed. It's the divine power of God. He gets up. He says, now grab your mat. This thing that you have laid on for the last 38 years, this thing which has become your home, pick that up and walk out of here. Because this is not where you belong anymore. Get up. I wonder how many times God has said to me, get up, pick up your mat and walk out. And I've gotten up. I've not picked up my mat and I've not walked out and I've stayed there. Even though I'm healed, I've stayed there in that place. Because it's scary. What, what if I walk out of here? What does that look like? Where am I going to go? Jesus heals and then gives us something to obey. He wants us to move from a passive existence to an active existence once again. You see, forgiveness for our sins is only the first part. He empowers us then to stand and walk into a new life, to take on each day in the power of the Holy Spirit. If getting forgiven is one thing, but then he empowers us to be able to live that life every day of our lives and as per usual as in most stories which Jesus is involved there's not a Pharisee too far behind and in John 5 9 to 10 it says instantly the man was healed he rolled up his sleeping mat and he began walking but this miracle happened on the Sabbath so the Jewish leaders objected they said to the man who was cured you can't work on the Sabbath the law does not allow you to carry that sleeping mat Basically, they wanted him arrested for unauthorized use of a sleeping mat. For poor operation of a bedroll. It's crazy Pharisees, aren't they? They saw a man miraculously cured and all they cared about was carrying a mat on a wrong day. I'm, I'm sorry, but some Christians are like this. They really are. We've seen 86 first-time decisions so far this year, of people giving their lives to Jesus Christ. But I'll get somebody write a note that says, you need to open up your curtains and let the light of Jesus shine in because you've got the, you've got the auditorium so dark, you're actually inviting the darkness to come. Let me explain one thing to you in case you were the one that wrote that anonymous thing because they're so brave, they always do it anonymously. If we open up the curtains, the sunlight comes in, not God's light just in case you didn't realize. Because the Bible says that you're the city on the hill that shouldn't be hidden. So the light of Jesus comes from you, not because we open curtains. But forget that 86 people have got saved this year. Pharisees. Sorry, I just had to get that out of my system. See, what they should have understood is this. Because we're connected, because we're family, when somebody else has victory over hopelessness, it's also our victory over hopelessness. When somebody has a breakthrough, it's also our breakthrough. Because if God can do it for them, then God can do it for me. What they should have understood is that, is that Christ can bring the same liberation to me as that he brought to that one there. That I too can stand. That I too can walk. 
that I too can pick up my mat. You see, we need to understand something that once you get to the end of, this is why hopelessness is where you find your strength because when you get to the end of you, it's always the beginning of Jesus. When you get to the end of you, it's always the beginning of Christ. And the great thing about Christ is he has no time limits and he does not have a favorite time but he has a time that is called now. And if you'd ask him for help now, he'll move now. God doesn't wait. God doesn't sit back. Jesus will come to you when you get to the end of yourself. When you are done trying to do what you think you can do to fix yourself, to solve yourself, to heal yourself, to renew yourself. When you finally get to the end of yourself and say, I am in a hopeless situation and I can't do this just like that man. I can't get into the pool. Then Jesus steps up to the plate and goes, oh, finally, finally you got to the end of you because at the end of you is the beginning of me. And then he steps in in a way that he never steps in any other way and says, let me show you where your strength comes from. That's why he says things like, when you are weak, I am strong. He understands that when we get to the end of ourselves, we stop fighting in the strength that we have and we start living in the authority that He has and we get up and we pick up our mat and we walk into the next day filled with the Holy Ghost, filled with the power of God and not ourselves. I don't need to deal with my situation in my own strength because I'm now filled with the Holy Ghost and I can deal with it in His strength. Because when I'm weak, He is strong. When you are in a hopeless situation, you are in the best situation because God specializes in hopeless situations. When He came to Lazarus and He's in the tomb, what did Jesus say? Lazarus, get up and come forth. When He finds Jairus, daughter has died on his way to here. He says, don't worry, Jairus, hold on to your faith. In other words, don't get down, get up, pick up that mat and walk again. There's a thief hanging on the cross. He's about to die in a hopeless situation, but he asks for God in that split moment for help and ends up living in paradise. These disciples are fished all night and caught nothing, but at his word, nevertheless, they let down the nets and caught such a big catch that they couldn't even fit it into all of their boats. Why? Because God specializes. When we get to the place of saying, I am hopeless, I am helpless, I can't do this, then God goes, cool, can I now do this? Can I now step in and be your strength? Would you just admit to yourself that you are hopeless that you're in a hopeless situation and you can't fix yourself and you can't fix that pain and you can't heal what happened to you in your childhood? Would you just get to that point where you get to the end of you so that I can begin in you? So you can really know what it means when he says, I no longer live, but it's Christ who lives in me. Would you understand that hopelessness is not a position of shame, but hopelessness is a position of humility and God gives grace to the humble and exalts the humble? But while you're standing in your position of pride, He has to resist you, not because He doesn't want to help you, but because the Scripture says that He resists the proud. 
He wants to help you, but for him, while it's all about you, he can't be all about him. And he's just waiting for you to get to the end of you so that it can be the beginning of him. When did you stop asking for help? You see, they could have all dismissed Jesus' invitation to try one more time, to have another go, to get up, to have faith, to be obedient. You see, it's never too late. It's never too, oh, well, I've tried and I think God's given up. No, 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 friend, it's never too late. There's no better time. There's no more perfect time for you than right now, right here, right this moment to turn around and go, God, I need your help. There's no better moment than right now and say, Jesus, I'm at the end of me. I'm in a hopeless situation, but I know that that's when you turn up the most. You don't have to live the life The life you have is not the life that you must accept. You don't have to accept where you're at. You don't have to accept the pain. You don't have to accept the brokenness. You don't have to accept that life. Because Christ didn't die for you to have that life. You only need to ask for help. You have not because you ask not. And the more hopeless position you are in, the better because the more open that you are that God could move. When you are in a position of such hopelessness, it's like Mother Teresa said, you don't realize Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you've got. When you get to the end of yourself, all of a sudden you say, why didn't I do this earlier? Why didn't I let God in so much earlier? Why have I put up with this pain for 38 years of of sex abuse and, and emotional abuse and drug abuse, why have I put up with all that stuff for so long when I could have just said, I can't do this. Can you help me? Can you help me? Because Jesus meets you right there at the end of yourself. And he doesn't come in and judge you he doesn't come in and say, about time, boofhead, you should have done this years ago. No, no, no. He just says, thank you. Now let me help you. Let me take that pain. Let me take that heartache. Let me take that broken marriage. Let me take that unsaved child of yours that you're worried about. Will you, will you stop trying to get them saved and let me do it. You let me step in. Why don't we just all close our eyes just for a moment this morning. In the first place, we're going to ask Jesus for help. It's for the forgiveness of our sin. I don't know everybody here in this room, but I know this much, that Jesus died on the cross way before you realized that you needed him, or way before you realized that you had sin in your life. He died for you all those years ago so that you could be saved. He, he already said, you know, there's gonna come a time in your life where you're in a hopeless situation where you realize that you can't fix yourself. And so I'm gonna be the solution before you even realize you need it. And so he hung on the tree and died for our sins. But not just that, but then he rose again. He got up and he picked up his mat and he walked out of the tomb to show us that you too can not only be saved, but you can live in a victorious life in the power of the Spirit. And I don't know everybody in this room, 
I don't know where you've come from. I don't know what situation that you're in, but I know this much. If you've never asked Jesus Christ to be Lord and Savior, friend, you'll never have the life that you want to have. You'll never be able to get over the stuff that you want to get over. You will find yourself in a hopeless situation time and time again until you cry out to him and say, Jesus, help me. 